Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, the poll last night on One News gave a bit more encouragement, I would think, to those of us desperate for a change of government in October. Uh, in case you missed it, the National Party are on 37, ACT are on 11. Labour was 35, the Greens were down to 7. The Maori Party was on 3. But with New Zealand First and four other parties together polling 7%, but not having an electorate seat, National and ACT together could form a government. The response from those two parties after the poll, though, was absolutely illuminating. For various reasons, I'm on the mailing list for both. The National Party's missive was to ask for money, like a $30 donation, to help them counter what they claim is a taxpayer-funded $60,000 spend by Labour on social media ads this month alone. There was little commentary about the poll, and the note wasn't even signed by a politician. It just signed off National Party HQ. I mean, these guys, frankly, are out to lunch. In contrast, the ACT email, which arrived six minutes after the Nats one, about 6.26, I think it was last night, it was signed by David Seymour. It also asked for money, but it had some impact. The first line was, tonight's poll tells a story. Labour's reign of woke terror will end. And then it talked about ACT's ambition to raise its percentage of the next government uh, from a quarter to a third. And it talked about the need for real change, as in, quote, consequences for crime, an end to divisive co-government, government spending and regulation cut back to what serves people's needs, unquote. I mean, the contrast between the two parties could not have been clearer. One was lively, ambitious, engaging with its database and mailing list, and the other was not. Now, for the record, I won't be donating to either party, but I tell you what, I'm backing a National Act government with Act wagging a very big tail on National's dog come the 14th of October. Now, you might remember that a few weeks ago I told you about Casey Costello from Hobson's Pledge writing to various people in government to get a definition of racism. Her reasoning is very sound because, you see, there are a lot of government anti-racism programmes. And if you're spending millions on such programmes... Surely it makes sense to be able to define what it is that you're campaigning against. So Casey Costello of Napui wrote to 17 ministers and the Human Rights Commission to get a definition of racism. Now, these were the most honest answers. Madame Davidson of the Greens said that, quote, we have no agreed definition of racism. The Human Rights Commission came back and said, quote, they do not hold a single agreed definition of the term. Every other cabinet minister refused to say even that, surely highlighting a rather important issue. How can you spend millions on anti-racism campaigns when nobody is even prepared to define just what racism is? And don't say, as Jacinda Ardern famously did once when trying to define hate speech, you'll know it when you see it, because one person's racism is another's humour. One person's offence 
is another's strong opinion. And then there is the matter of natural justice, because how can one defend oneself against a sweeping accusation of racism if there is no definition of what racism is? As Casey Costello says, it is not racist to demand that all New Zealanders are treated equally before the law. But the police are spending $2 million to research bias and racism in policing practices. The Ministry of Justice have a national action plan against racism, which we're not even told the cost of. And then there's the $42 million being spent by the Ministry of Education on their anti-racism initiative. How can all that money be justified when nobody can even define racism? Good question, is it not? Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Uh, This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show. The refusal by the parole board not to let Mark Lundy out of jail is somewhat perplexing to me, to say the least, because the parole board is essentially saying that because uh, Lundy won't admit to what he's convicted of doing, that is killing his wife and daughter, he can't be let out of jail. But is he likely to offend again? Almost certainly not. Did he cause any trouble when he was free after his original conviction was declared unsafe and he was released from prison before the second trial? No, he didn't. Has he caused any problems when on work release since he's been back inside? No. So doesn't that paint a picture of a man unlikely to be a danger to the community? Of course it does. But because he maintains his innocence, he stays behind bars. He first went to jail in 2002. He came out in 2013 after the Privy Council found the conviction was unsafe. But in 2015, he was retried, reconvicted and sent back in. His appeal against the second conviction has been dismissed, so now he's having the Criminal Cases Review Commission look at his case. Now, there is no doubt he is staunch in maintaining his innocence, but the circumstances of his convictions have always seemed dodgy to me. Firstly, the impossible three-hour return trip to Palmerston North, which was changed for the second trial, and then the questionable mRNA science about the stain on his shirt, evidence which was later ruled inadmissible. Now, to be perfectly honest, I don't think Mark Lundy did it. I think he's a victim of moral outrage about using a prostitute the night of the murders and of a judiciary that bizarrely says key evidence is inadmissible, but then dismisses his appeal. I feel sorry for Mark Lundy. After all, modern government policy seems to be to let criminals out of jail so that they can, well, go and commit more crime. Mark Lundy stays inside despite the likelihood of him causing trouble again being, well, close to zero. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, here's a line that has really stayed under the radar. The latest Westpac report says this year the net migration into New Zealand will be 100,000 people. That means a 2.5% increase in the population, the biggest population surge in this country since 1961. And remember, 1961 was the peak of the baby boom when the birth rate per woman was over four and the population increase was almost all natural-born New Zealanders. So how has this immigration boom happened? 
How come there have been no questions to the Prime Minister or the Finance Minister about how and why these people keep arriving? Have we prepared for it? And wasn't the government policy to keep the immigration gates controlled even when the borders opened again after COVID? The inevitable first question is, where will these people live? Where will their kids go to school? Are there enough hospital beds for them if they get sick? The simple answer is, we are not prepared for this. But it's happening. And although this year's number is expected to be a spike, there are still likely to be between 25 and 40,000 people moving here permanently each year in the years ahead. Now, that will keep the economy growing, but is immigration the best method of doing that? Shouldn't we be lifting productivity and GDP on a per-person basis rather than just having more people producing and spending? Now, if the Westpac prediction is, is right, we really do have to fear for the country's infrastructure, don't we? We may have a better economy, but we'll have more cars on the roads and more kids in our classes because we're not building new roads and hardly any schools. I mean, this is a staggering U-turn by the government with their immigration policy, and they didn't even tell us it was coming. So the official cash rate has gone up a quarter of a percent. Now, if that translates into floating mortgage rates on a $500,000 home loan, which might be at the moment at the common and popular rate of, say, 8.39%, the weekly interest payment will go from around $807 a week to $830 a week, around about $1,200 a year. This Labor government seems well aware that this extra burden on household expenditure could be tough to cope with. So very usefully, uh, they put out some money-saving tips, all based around your power bill. Labor says you should have shorter showers. Don't turn your heater above a certain temperature. If you don't like those ideas, you could change your washing machine to a cold water cycle. I mean, really? Now, the campaign is called Finding Money in Weird Places. National's Chris Bishop was quickly on the case, saying one weird place where money could be found would be to reduce the size of the bloated Wellington bureaucracy. Good call, Chris. Uh, this is, frankly, a staggeringly tone-deaf campaign, which even hardline lefties think is stupid. It's sort of reminiscent of 2008, when Helen Clark made some comment about how the country should have a showerhead which restricted water flow so as to save money. That was desperate stuff. This is desperate stuff too. But is National fleet-footed enough to take political advantage of it? I have to say they made a decent fist of the response on the first day a couple of days ago, but that was just one day. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, it looks like there's been a major change, or there's going to be a major change, in the way that we teach reading in schools, which frankly is not before time. But here's the thing. What is being proposed is nothing new. It's reverting to a way of teaching reading, which was the way we always did it, with great results up until the early 1990s. Then teaching of reading went off on a path called balanced literacy, which is based on a whole-of-language approach, encouraging students to learn to read through the context of the story. This structured literacy is about getting kids to understand the way to sound out a word, in other words, phonics. 
The reality is, though, that our reading standards, as measured by international testing, have been dropping significantly this century. And now the Minister of Education, Jan Tanetti, a former primary school principal herself, is prepared to instruct her ministry to change the way it teaches reading, which is a big call. Has the minister really got the courage to follow through on that against the ideologues at the Ministry of Education? If she has, and she said on the TV news a couple of nights ago that she has the powers to do it, then good for her. I suspect it will take at least five years, though, for the results to come through. But the message seems to have landed with the minister. Education standards are dropping, reading standards in particular are dropping, and the electorate has noticed. Education should become an important election issue this year. Labour might be late to the game, but at least they're now on the field. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, we all know the country is desperately short of doctors, and one of the more straightforward ways of increasing the number of doctors, surely, is to train more of them at medical school. Otago University is very keen to increase the number of medical students each year from 282 to 300. Now, 18 more students doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 6% more in each year's intake. So after five years, which is the length of time needed to complete a medical degree, there'd be 90 more trained doctors in the system. What's even more frustrating is that Otago University is ready, willing and able to take the extra students, but the government has to approve it first. That's because each full-time student equivalent attracts extra funding for the university, and it seems the government is not prepared to pay. I mean, it's quite outrageous, really. The health budget is 71% bigger than when Labor came to government in 2017. $16.4 billion in 2017 against $28.1 billion in 2023. Most of it seems to have gone in front office reorganisation. Even worse, the government is refusing to say why it's not prepared to allow another 18 medical students at Otago each year. The Minister of Health, Asia Verrill, says the decision was made before she was promoted to the job, which frankly is just not a good enough excuse. The decision to increase the size of each year's intake at medical school should be a no-brainer. Bizarrely, National are not firming up on this policy either. You would think this would be another easy hit for them. They should get on the front foot on this one and make a big deal of it. I mean, getting enough doctors is critical in improving health care. So why don't we just go ahead and do it? This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on RCR Reality Check Radio, coming to you from the heart of central Otago. It's a place where we often talk about airports. I don't know why, we just do. But Queenstown Airport are planning for their future. They've put out their 10-year plan for consultation. It's a future they would appear to see without competition from Taris International. Queenstown has released its master plan. It predicts an increase in passengers from 2.4 million this year to 3.2 million by 2032. Not a significant increase. 
The number of incoming and outgoing flights each year is expected to rise from just under 18,000 this year to 22,000 in nine years from now. There's an expansion of the terminal planned and the helicopters will be taken away to the top end of the airport. But the most important part of the plan is the installation of a taxiway. This will allow departing or arriving planes to get off the main runway quickly, allowing more flights to land or take off. The concepts all seem pretty good to me and would seem to suggest the airport will be big enough to cope with the increase in passenger numbers predicted over the next 10 years. Some of the other ideas are pretty cool too, like the idea of having arriving passengers walking or being taken to a jetty down on Frankton Beach about a kilometre away to catch a ferry into Queenstown downtown. And if this plan goes ahead, will there be a market for Terrace International? Now, I live near where that is planned, and of course, I don't want it to go ahead. But even if it doesn't happen as an airport, the big tip is it will be used as a big inland port, complete with containers, concrete, big sheds, and big trucks. But if it is decided to build an airport in Tarras, it seems Queenstown is working very hard to ensure it becomes the number one place around here to fly in and out of. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, Don Brash might be on the other side of 80, but he is still super sharp and in no doubt as to why house prices are so high. It's a theme he's written about before, but he's dead right. The cost of a house in Auckland, despite the falling prices, is still 11 times median income. It's even worse in Tauranga, where it's 12 times median income. Uh, Brash lays the blame squarely at the feet of local government because they restrict land supply. That pushes up the price of land because there's not enough of it allowed for housing. Don Brash argues that Auckland's urban boundary should be dispensed with. Now, at the moment, land in Papakura in South Auckland, zoned urban, is worth around $2,000 a square metre. Across the road, where the land is zoned rural, it's about $700 a square metre. So a modest 400, meter, uh, 400 square metre section is close to a million dollars. But here's the thing, a really top quality home can be built on that for 350000 It seems ludicrous that a house would cost half that of the dirt lying underneath it. So the challenge now is for central government to get local government to expand its urban boundaries. We have so much vacant land all over the country, it seems incomprehensible that land is in short supply and is so expensive. The National Party, it seems, has changed its mind on building heaps of apartments in the inner city. It now wants expanded urban boundaries to free up land supply, to have greenfields development. Like with a few other things, a National are a bit late to the party, but at least now they are thinking the right way. Right, we are still 18 months away from the next American presidential election, but there was a significant milestone yesterday, our time, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, officially announcing that he will run for the Republican nomination against Donald Trump. He has a huge job ahead of him, though, and it didn't start well with all those Twitter glitches. For some reason, the majority of Republicans, though, are still in love with Donald Trump. I don't get it. That's not to say most of the charges against Trump are essentially political ones, 
designed to take him out of the race next year. The problem for the Democrats, though, is that every time a Democrat prosecutor like this guy Elvin Bragg in New York tries to pin one on Donald Trump, his poll ratings to be the next president go up. My problem with Trump is that even though his presidency had some successful outcomes, like no involvement in a foreign war, he is such a flawed character as an individual. Now, this may sound trivial, but anybody who cheats at golf like Donald Trump does, and he does it so often there's been a book written about it, uh, that sort of person is frankly unfit to be the leader of the free world. I get it that Ron DeSantis is not everyone's cup of tea, even though he's a young man, just 44 years old. He has conservative views on the culture wars, on issues such as abortion, uh, the teaching of history, and LGBTQ rights. They obviously play very well in Florida, where he's the governor, but he uh, won't go so well in California or New York, thinking like that. Call me ageist, but the prospect of uh, Biden v. Trump again, frankly, is horrifying for the world. I would just like to see one candidate in November of next year, uh, one candidate for president, who was born in the second half of the 20th century. Now it's a Friday afternoon, looking ahead to the weekend. We have to talk sport, don't we? Let's talk about Aaron Smith right now. The Highlanders and the All Black halfback is set to play his final home game for the Highlanders tonight against the Reds under the roof in Dunedin. This week here in the South, there have been lots of tributes and lots of reminiscing about one of the all-time greats of rugby, not just here in the South, but uh, on the All Black scene as well. He came to Dunedin 13 years ago as a promising young player from fielding in the Manawatu. He'd actually been working as a hairdresser there. But it didn't take him long uh, to assume the first choice halfback role in the Highlanders. Then in 2012, he got the call up to the All Blacks. He's been a star for both teams since, winning both a World Cup and a Super Rugby title in the same year, 2015. And what has made him stand out as a real superstar of the game? Well, I think it comes down to two things, his accuracy and his extraordinary fitness. He's always there at the base of the ruck, even after play might have gone through 15 phases. His dispatch of the ball always finds its mark, and that doesn't come about through sheer luck. Like all the great players, he's always been an assiduous trainer. Now, yes, there have been some hiccups along the way, the Christchurch Airport toilet incident in 2016 will always linger at the back of many people's minds. Tonight, though, is a big night for him and his team. He'll be back for the All Blacks against Australia in early August in Dunedin, but tonight will be an emotional send-off for him from his teammates in the Highlanders and for Highlanders fans. Long-suffering they are this year, too. But he also knows his team have to win to stay in the top eight of Super Rugby. So to you, Aaron Smith, we say go well. The South especially, but the whole country is right with you. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.